0: The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community, and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades, and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI, or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing, and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio.
1: Hi, this is Lenny Kaiser with clearancejobs.com, and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today, I am really excited, I even have the book here, to be talking with Daniel Stewart-Olmes, Olm's, is the president and chief operating officer of Accelerate and also first time published author. So, we're gonna have his book. So, we're here to talk about the book. I love this because I am a total bibliophile and book geek, but also clearly host a federal news radio show. So, very interested in the government contracting world. So, I think it's awesome when anytime anybody in the GovCon space writes a book or has a passion project, I think sometimes work-life balance is not known as our strong suit in the GovCon community. So it's good, we're, we're kind of trying to tout more wellness and you know holistic approach to life. And it's great to have a conversation with somebody. A lot of that is in the book, but then also kind of it's actually an example of it in the fact that you are currently the president of a really innovative company doing a lot of cool work around the cleared space. You are also a first-time published author. So thank you, Danny, so much for being on the show and for chatting with me today.
2: Now, thank you, Lindy. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate a platform like this to, to talk about business, to talk about our experiences in, in GovCon and, and our personal experiences. I think those are very important. You hit on it. Balance is very important in life. Some would argue that it's not. That success is driven by people who kind of overdo it in, in, in one way or another. I, I believe that balance is an extremely important aspect of life. Uh, So you you hit on it.
1: Awesome. So we talked about this before when you were getting ready to publish the book. So I've been following this process with you. You mentioned how you just had this kind of passion point. You wanted to write a book. What prompted that desire or interest to even write?
2: Sure. You know, if I go back to my high school days, and, and a lot of this is in the book, my strengths were things that were very logical. Math, writing was very logical. One would argued that music is very logical in a way. I didn't have that talent necessarily. But math and writing were always interests of mine. They came very easily. And what didn't come very easily were things that actually I decided to study in college, which was biology, just simply sitting down and and, and memorizing a lot of things, Uh, just not how my brain worked and not what I was passionate about. So, you know, that led to a struggle in my college years of, of trying to understand what i was good at understand my passions but my real passions were looking out at the night sky in in absolute wonder i i had this you know fascination for physics i wanted to be a physicist that's what i wanted to do with my life but you know i got in this mindset that you know i if i wanted to be successful or if i wanted to seem smart or you know impress other people i had to do certain things a lot of those mindsets and decisions took me off those those paths I didn't really kickstart my real passions until later in life. I became a lifelong reader like you. I think that's why we connected. And that was something that was difficult for me before a certain age. I probably had some form of ADHD, uh, very difficult to focus on word after word for hours at a time, but explored those passions where I didn't you know, necessarily put them to use in a profession. I explored them as a hobby in reading and writing also became something that was very Important to me. That all started with an experience I had in my parking garage at work a number of years ago. And I've spoken about this experience in, in every podcast that I've done or in every appearance that I've made because it was so important. It was a very average, ordinary event. And, you know, it was watching this very elderly woman walk by the front of my car as I pulled into my parking space in this parking garage. In her hand was a gym bag. The parking garage that I parked in was below. a a gym. And when I say that that experience triggered an absolute rush of energy, I would not do that justice. I mean, the energy was so powerful that I could almost hear it ringing through my body. And what dawned on me in that moment that if I could have that type of experience with a total stranger on an average day, completely unexpectedly, uh, that I could probably have that experience with many other things. And, And potentially I was missing a whole lot of the world around me. And what that old woman really enlightened for me was the importance of of strength and endurance and not necessarily physical strength, but spiritual endurance, emotional endurance.
1: I love that. And I do think that is like what you see throughout the book. And it's kind of this changing this focus from, we do tend to look inward and look down and you're kind of pivoting the focus out and saying, Hey, there's a lot of, as you would say, extraordinary experiences, you know, hidden within the ordinary people just take a minute to stop and look at them. So again, I read the book because I had met you before. And so uh, the book resonated with me, but it was not necessarily what I expected because it talks a lot about your personal life, but your career is certainly some small part of it. So again, I am in the GovCon space. So I kind of want to address that a little bit. How did you maybe decide what stories to unpack or talk about? When was your career a part of that? And then when maybe was it not? And was that even like a thought process for which stories to include and which not to? I
2: think a lot of the stories you know, about midway through the book I talk about my career, how it became what it became, maybe some of the areas where I got lucky, you know, why I got into certain professions versus others. It goes back to what I mentioned about my experience in college and education. I picked things that I wasn't good at. I wasn't passionate about it. Actually, I picked things that covered up insecurities of mine. You know, if I major in biology, I'll seem smart. If I tell people that you know, I'm committed to big ideas and big problems like AIDS and cancer. Somehow that will put me on a different level of other people. Those were all lies that I told myself and other people. I went to an out-to-work day at the National Institutes of Health and my next-door neighbor was a head researcher at the National Cancer Institute. It, it was like a foreign language. It was like a, you know, something, it was a totally unique experience. It was, it was fascinating, but it, was, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I came out of that experience, you know, I, I said, hey, I did the out-to-work day at NIH. And everybody's like, wow. And I was like, well, I'm going to go tackle big problems like AIDS and cancer, like I said. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to study the stars. About halfway through college, I got an internship with Coopers and Libran, which was the predecessor company of Coopers. I only got that because my uncle was the chief operating officer. I, it's not what I wanted to do. I, I didn't have a 3.8 grade point average to get that internship. I was there because I knew somebody. In that chapter that talks about that, my career and my start as an intern, the gentleman that I sat next to was friends with the CEO. And we both looked at each other at one point. And it's a funny exchange in the story that like, you're like, how did you get here? Well, how did you get here? And lo and behold, 20 years later, we lead Accelerate Solutions. He's the CEO and I'm the chief operating officer. And it sort of testifies to the fact that relationships probably matter than most things, that your career is going to take you know, 10 different turns that you couldn't anticipate or didn't want necessarily. But at the core of all of that is human relationships. You know, I got into GovCon, I got lucky. I didn't deserve to be there. I got an internship I didn't deserve. I, I didn't screw it up. I was offered a pretty good job when I graduated. That again, sounded prestigious. Oh, you got an offer from PricewaterhouseCoopers. You must have done something right. You must be incredibly intelligent. No, that I sat and stared at spreadsheets for the next 20 years. I referred to it in that chapter that I talked about my career as a white-collar death sentence because I slowly abandoned everything I ever wanted to do and I knew it. I had genuine anxiety on my first day of work because this is not what I wanna do. Now, it led to a great career. I'm not gonna say that it didn't, but it wasn't what I was passionate about. And people ask me all the time, would you go back and change what you did? And I don't don't know if I can answer that right now. You know, like I said, I developed in a hobby what I was not able to do in a profession. What's interesting about that is that had I become a physicist like I wanted to or a mathematician, I might not have reinforced an already strong faith that I had. It might have actually derailed my spiritual life. You know, I talk a lot about my spiritual life in the book. So would I go back and change things? No, probably not. And I got to a place where I really enjoyed what I did and I was passionate about the work that I did. It didn't start off that way.
1: Well, I think you you hit on a a right blend of things. I think we talk a lot about what we're passionate about, but sometimes we don't talk enough about what we're good at. You can try you can be passionate about something and not do it well, and that's not going to work out. You kind of have to have some blend of both. I I'd be curious what your perspective was. I tend to lean on the side of like pursue what you're good at, and I think as you start to get you know, I'm somebody with low self-esteem, so I need to ride that train of some positive reinforcement. You get that positive reinforcement, and then it builds up your passion for that thing. Sometimes people might have a passion for something. They're not good at it, and it just gonna, it's just going to sink you to the ground. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Like, how do you kind of blend that pursuit of what you're good at, but then what you're passionate about?
2: You know, in the book, I, I talk a lot about my personal struggles, substance abuse being one. I struggled with alcohol for many years following my years in in college. And I go back and ask myself, why did I drink? Why did I overdo it? The main reason was I didn't feel good at anything. I didn't pick things that aligned with my strengths. I didn't have the opportunities and the experiences that I wanted as a result of that. And there was a lot of dissatisfaction in life because of that, a lot of confusion, not to say that I mean, this is the experience for most people. Like, do we ever actually perform in a job what we studied in college or what we actually were passionate about as young people? Probably not. And maybe the world's not set up to really do that. You know, if if that was the case, then every person that grew up in my era would be Indiana Jones or Luke Skywalker. And maybe that's not realistic and you have to dial that back a little bit. But again, I didn't choose things that I was good at at all. And I struggled. I mean, I got to the business world. I had no idea that you could even enter a formula in Excel, much less calculate a profit and loss statement. And I found myself in this environment where everything was a foreign language. And I did my best. The only thing that I did was cover up how bad I was and how naive and inexperienced I was. And just getting bad feedback all the time. Like you said, I mean, you see those same parallels in like social media, like people being obsessed with getting likes and then getting depressed when they don't. So I think that paradigm exists in a lot of different things. You know, the other, the other thing that I was passionate about, I was passionate about mountains. I wanted to be a mountaineer. I write a lot about in that story about my career. I write about an adventurer named Jamie Clark, who wrote the forward to my book, who was actually the concluding motivational speaker, Of our intern, our final intern event uh, that summer between my junior and senior year of college. You know, he spoke a lot about his attempts at Everest. And, you know, I'm sitting there in that auditorium, like my feet bouncing off the floor, my head tingling. I mean, I would have followed him out that front door and done whatever he asked me to do. But right there in that seat in that auditorium with 500 other interns from around the country from all the big five, I knew it was gone. That dream was over. That led to years of dissatisfaction. It took me a long time to try to figure out how to write.
1: Well, that, that actually tees into one of my questions here, which was talking about how chance encounters have led to big revelations. I would say that seems to be a current of the because A lot of it is, again, these ordinary moments that led to extraordinary revelations. Like, and again, there's a huge spiritual undercurrent. Someone is speaking to you through those moments, you know, and you're, you're perceiving that and then acting upon it. So can you kind of maybe talk about that?
2: You know, I've read hundreds of books in my life. I've studied Hinduism, Buddhism, I was raised as a christian i studied even new age philosophies and the number one thing that or the number one theme that weaves itself through those traditions regardless of what you you know what you believe is that we tend to live in a place that responds to our decisions our energy our kindness the love that we put into the world i can't describe what that is when i say the universe responds i think that if you do enough of the right things, you make enough of the right choices, that if you're kind to people and you develop the right types of relationships, if you have a good attitude, I mean, everything is about attitude, right? The world that you experience is just information at the end of the day. And one of my favorite quotes is by Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He's the Austrian psychologist and, and Holocaust survivor. He says, in between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is how you choose to reflect on what just happened to you and it's in that space that determines your growth in life uh, so everything that you experience there's a choice in how you reflect on that 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 freedom is fundamentally never taken away uh, i say that understanding things like mental illness and other situations but for the vast majority of us that decision on how you reflect on information is not taken away you know again the experience of life in my opinion my humble opinion it is a choice that choice being far more difficult for some people than others. I fully give respect to that. But again, it goes back to we live in a responsive place. So all of the decisions you make, all of the people you meet, whether they're strangers or loved ones, your experience of that is a, is a choice. And you asked about looking backward, you know, in Christian traditions and in many other traditions, the, the idea of forgiveness is, is paramount. And usually people mistake that as a condoning of somebody else's behavior. Forgiveness is about not allowing something to negatively affect you anymore, including the past. Forgiveness is about forgiving the past. If you can view the past differently, then you can experience the past differently. The past is just information. Again, I love that question because how you interact with the world at the end of the day is a choice. And if you have that mindset that I'm going to make a good choice with the information that has come to me, I think your view of the world changes overnight.
1: You know, we are are responsible for our own actions and attitudes and responses, I think. Sometimes people forget that. And so I think the attitude and I mean, I'm a positivity warrior. I was toxically positive before it was a bad thing to be. That's tends to be where I come from. But I do think that ties into a lot of things. And I would love to have you hit on a little bit, you know, riding, living, working in the D.C. Metro.
2: The D.C. area has changed quite a bit. When i was a kid it was a very static group of people most everybody worked for the federal government was a civil servant in, in some way or another or they worked for state and local government and you know a lot of the big defense contractors big companies move into the area and that brought you know a very transient population but what that brought was a lot of different types of people different attitudes different perspectives different upbringings different values I think one of the challenges that we all face in this area is that it's a very wealthy area. Everybody who lives in Northern Virginia will say you live in the Northern Virginia bubble, and I know that's a fear for a lot of parents out there that their kids grow up in an environment where they don't really understand the meaning of money or the value of things or the struggle that most people go through to have some of those things. I tell the story a lot. My son is a baseball player, and. You know, in his little league games, he stands at, at the plate with a piece of equipment in his hand that costs more than what most people on the planet make in a year. And, and he has three or four of those in any given year. And I'll tell you a, a really short story that impacted me as a parent. And it was one of those kind of quintessential moments in, in an adult life where you see something click, and in particular, in your children's view of the world. We were going to go do some volunteer work at a place called the All Dulles area muslim center in in Herndon. It it's called the Adam center and they were having a coat drive for the syrian refugees and we're getting ready to go and my kids are sort of complaining they're they didn't you know they don't want to go they want to sit there and watch cartoons I mean they're like 8 or 9 years old right Or play fortnite or watch youtube or doing something else couldn't be bothered and and I sort of I didn't lose it but I sort of like I got a little frustrated I said I, I need you to sit down and they saw the look in my eyes and I googled Syrian refugee children. And I took the phone and I said, I said, these are the people we're going to help. I mean, I showed them the horror. And it was clear that they had no idea. And when I say it was a somber car ride, I you mean know, they're staring out the window. I mean, it was like their world was just blown up. But when we got there, they were ready to help. And going back to why I wrote the book, I think that, you know, there is a chaotic, anxiety-ridden experience in this area because I mean, it's such a grind, it's so competitive, it is it's so focused on winning and material wealth. And I don't mean to go off on a tangent about that, but like it is true that the subtleties of life where the real meaning and happiness and joy can be found. You know, you talked about being a Jesus person where the Holy Spirit resides, the still small voice. Again, we lose the ability to tap into that if we don't make a conscious choice in in the moment. And that's what I think, you know, it's a challenge I mean we live in an area with wonderful opportunity and that should never be taken away, but it comes at a cost. Yeah, I could probably talk for hours on that, on those points, but it's a great question.
1: Well, I love that. I don't want to take up more of your time memoirs of an ordinary guy if you like these stories you get a lot more of them so again he is not he is not giving you all of his best material i hate it when you watch a preview for a movie you know and they give you all your best stuff so there's a lot more even better stuff in the book so check it out danny olms um, thank you so much for being on the program and appreciate your time today
2: lindy thank you very much enjoyed it
3: Welcome to the conversation. I am Sean Bigley, and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about juvenile histories and the working title we sort of had for this one, Lindy, was the government doesn't care about your childhood antics most of the time. And I think that's true. Most people in my experience who have had some colorful juvenile pasts are concerned about those coming back to haunt them. And it's somewhat common. Is this a question you get a lot on clearance jobs?
1: We do. It comes up often over at clearancejobsblog.com, which is our forum. That's where kind of we get folks on the applicant piece of it. We've had some student intern threads that are always exciting. I love to get those. Sometimes I wonder if they're actually real people because the people are so honest. And I remember, oh, there are people like that, especially when you look at kind of the NSA applicant pool, some of those common it will get people are talking about yeah that time that they cheated on their homework and then they did you know they stole the wi-fi password from their mom and they have to just have all of these things that could be possibly bad that they've done <laughs> and I always feel bad for those folks I'm like you should never take a polygraph like you might be able to get in but the polygraph is going to be really hard for you because there's just two people that people who do things that are wrong and can instantly forget them and people who do one thing thing wrong and they will die with them in the bleeding heart of their soul. And again, welcome to the world because we get both.
3: Very true. The dwellers, I call them, they they like to sort of dwell and ruminate on the, the one bad thing that they did 15 years ago. And on some level, you sort of chuckle, but on other level, you kind of feel for them because I think, you know, anxiety is a real thing. And for some people, it's, it really is that bad. I, I think hopefully there is some solace in this for most of the cleared population. And that is much like our working title for this segment, the government really doesn't care most of the time. Like I remember very distinctly years ago, somebody asking me if the fact that they stole an action figure from a store when they were eight years old was going to be used against them in the security clearance process. And they were totally serious. And I sort of come back to that one often because the reality is, most people who are applying for clearances are well out of the petty shoplifting phase and the you know juvenile antics phase. But there are some folks who you know had a rough childhood and and some rough teenage years. And certainly, you know, if you were somebody who was you know in juvenile hall when you were seventeen years old, and now you're twenty and you're applying for a clearance, there may be some impediments potentially, uh, just given the recency. But for most folks who are kind of living life and, and coloring outside the lines a bit as, as juveniles, it's, in my experience at least, not going to be a problem. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the things that you know commonly come up, some of the specifics that people tend to get that anxiety about pertains to juvenile history. I'll start with one that I saw come up frequently, and that was obviously drug experimentation. Most of the time, the government could care less about your drug experimentation when you were a minor, unless again, you're 18 years old, you're going into the military and the last time you did something was you know six months ago. Like that may be an impediment, but is it a permanent impediment? No, you gotta give yourself maybe a little bit of extra time, get yourself outside the window of what's called the bond amendment, which requires a year of abstinence. And then chances are, as long as you've demonstrated that you've outgrown that, you're probably gonna be fine. Lindy, any, any others frequent ones that come to mind?
1: Well, we've had a thread going so far in recent episodes, Sean, where you call me old. So I'm going <laughs> to old myself again. Remember Napster? Oh, like, remember yeah. the audio? It's been a while, Sean. It's been a while. But we used to get those all the time what are young people doing today that they don't have pirated or bootlegged online media? I feel like we've gone full circle. Now everything is just, you know, up for consumption online. But it used to be a lot of the cyber, digital, uh, that was a common one for young people for a while. And I did see denials and revocations based on that for a while, because you had, especially people applying for some of these cyber roles, had just a ton of pirated content that they had. And that was when it was funny. Like, I think for a while, the government was just trying to take a hardline stance a little bit of that of like the theft of intellectual property piece of it. But that is like an interesting, you know, you think about the things young people do online, and there is so much more content out there. And the social media piece of it, I think that's why you probably can get more anxiety around it. But I don't think it's catching people yet for good, bad, or otherwise. I don't I'm not sure how I feel about that. But I think the social media piece of it is one that I think you know young people if if they think about it it certainly has career ramifications a lot of crazy antics on the social sites oh it's like it's like a trip down memory lane thinking about my MySpace and my Napster i
3: bet it is i bet it is no i i am 100% with you i the social media stuff and the and the online you know activities that's definitely become an issue the downloading stuff we saw that a lot although ironically the times that i would see it was typically limited to one agency and that was NSA for whatever reason we would just get case after case after case when we were representing federal employees and contractors in security clearance denials at NSA where they were just going really hard on people for you downloaded this and that and they would include you know the, the amounts and it's estimated at this dollar amount and on and on and on and then we'd get other agencies where they wouldn't even bat an eye and so it's like it's very confusing for people navigate them their way through that kind of discrepancy in that that sort of territory but yes that's the I 100% agree um the other one i will add somewhat similar to that sexting actually this is a big one we have seen come up or we i saw come up in my law practice in the the sort of the the closing years uh, before i retired and that was younger people typically teenagers who were you know engaging in sexting activity and then they were applying for security clearances and I would get inquiries from people saying, I'm really scared. I think there's videos out there of me, you know, in compromising positions, doing things that, you know, could potentially be used against me for blackmail. What do I do? And that's an uncomfortable conversation to have because, yeah, in many cases it could be used for blackmail if it gets in the wrong hands. Granted, we have kind of this added... Layer to the onion that's starting to develop with things like AI where people are raising questions about that. And I sort of half jokingly would tell people like, well, the irony is, you know, you can always just blame it on AI and say, it wasn't me. It's not me in the video, you know, but I mean, truthfully, that's, that's something, you know, that does tend to come up more with the younger crowd and particularly teenagers. And so if there are videos out there of folks applying for clearances that are floating around of them engaged in, you know, sexual related behavior, Yeah, it could potentially be a problem. So the bottom line, from my perspective, at least, is most of this stuff kind of dissipates with time, like the passage of time, as you well know, is obviously one of the biggest mitigating factors in security clearance adjudications. In theory, at least everything is mitigatable with the passage of time. Your minor drug use when you were a minor is probably not a problem now that you were an adult, as long as it's been, you know, at least a year and you've demonstrated some life changes and moved away from bad influences and done some of the basic things that people do as they grow up. Activities as a juvenile on the internet with downloading and pirated content and stuff, music, probably not an issue as an adult. Maybe with the singular exception of NSA, if you're, you know, still in your 20s and that, you know, that one, you you may want to be careful of the sexting. That one, I think is probably the only one that, that maybe there's a little bit more of a delayed lingering concern because the the blackmail potential on that may not quite dissipate just as, as the concerns about judgment and maturity would with the other issues. So I, I always tell folks like, be careful with that stuff.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of security clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance security? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.